don't pace at all. We just go. It's a hundred percent effort from the beginning. We do not pace. We do not think anything other than go, 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 go. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello, fans of Shuklistan, and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you? I will now be reporting to our robot overlords. I have received my second shot, and I have been fully indoctrinated. (laughs) That was quick. My robot, I, I don't hit what we call Freedom Day until the Sunday. So, uh, you know, I, I expect that the robot overlord is supposed to take over then. Exactly. I will serve his needs. <laughs> no, so far, so good. Not too bad. I did the windmill thing. Okay. Where after you get the shot, you swing your arm around like a windmill. And I did it because Shuklastani, Bob's letter, Lauren Gibbs posted it on her Instagram story that you should do this. And, you know, Lauren Gibbs is silver medal, so I do what she tells me to do. And it really helps the soreness. So when you get your shot, windmill your arm right away, as soon as you can without hitting anybody in your various shot location. And it helps disperse the shot out of the concentrated muscle area, so it helps. Oh, And you keep doing it for a couple hours. I mean, not continuously, just like when you think of it. Very nice. All right. Uh, Before we get started today, we want to... Give a thank you and shout out to our Patreon patrons who keep our flame alive. The show has a lot of expenses, uh, particularly as we gear up to go to Beijing and have people on the ground there for the Olympics and the Paralympics. So our patrons are instrumental in uh, helping our financial situations. And for that help, we do some bonus episodes to our uh, bronze level and above patrons. And we have a new episode coming out in a couple of weeks that's going to have some uh, deleted content. It'll be a show with us, but it, it'll have some deleted content from Dominique Jones. And we'll be talking a lot about the Team USA Media Summit, which had a lot of interesting things go on that we haven't talked about on the show yet. So find out how you can get yours at patreon.com slash flamealivepod. Today, we are talking BMX racing with Connor Fields. Connor has competed in two Olympics. He was seventh at London 2012, and he won the gold medal at Rio 2016, and he is looking to repeat in Tokyo. He talked with us about how the sport works. Take a listen. BMX is kind of part obstacle course, part demolition derby on a bike. Uh, Go ahead. Well, do you like it called that way? Um, okay, so yeah, there's a couple things that go with that, right? So when it's done right, it's not demolition derby, right? That, that, yeah. that is only when things go wrong. You know, for whatever reason, a lot of the times at the actual Olympics themselves, everybody wants to get a medal so bad that they throw caution to the wind quite a bit more than usual, and it does cause a little bit more chaos than a typical race would have. But you know, we're not going out there with the intent to run into each other and hurt each other. We're going out there with the intent to uh, to win. But it is a contact sport. Um, so I do understand where you get the uh, the demolition derby aspect of it. 
So let's start with the bike itself. Tell us what makes a BMX bike different from maybe a pedestrian bike or road racing yeah. bike. Or a mountain bike. There's all mm-hmm. sorts of different bikes. So yeah. a BMX bike is uh, it's a fixed gear. So we don't have the gear that you can change like on a mountain bike or a road bike or anything like that. The fixed gear. So that's part of the choice when you're setting up your bike is to figure out what gear ratio you want to run. Uh, do you want to go a little bit harder, which might be a little bit more difficult to get it going, but once you're moving, you know, you have more momentum and you can continue to accelerate. Uh, there's no shocks. There's no shock absorbers anywhere on the bike. It's completely solid. So we have to be the shock absorber. And then it's like a balance between being light and being strong. So we're jumping 40-foot jumps. We're landing hard. And the bike needs to be able to withstand a lot. However, uh, lighter is always going to be faster uh, when you're trying to get uh, momentum and move the bike around. So it's a delicate balance. If you make your bike too light, you can lose control and also run the risk of it not being strong enough. But if your bike's too heavy, you're going to be trying to move a tank around. So there's kind of a delicate balance there. Uh, the wheels are specced at 20 inches, uh, so everybody has the same size wheel. You can have your handlebars. Uh, but outside of that, you can kind of set your bike up however you want. You know, what angles you want certain things to be at, what your tire compound is, different things like that. And that is part of the uh, the strategy and part of the game. So I would also think that as a BMX rider, you yourself have to have a balance between light and strong. Correct. You have to be so, heavy yeah. enough to manage, but still flexible and, and light enough to ride. Correct. So it's not like a road road biking or uh, any sort of longer endurance sport where you try to be really light, really lean, and it's all about power to weight. For us, obviously, we want to be lean and we want to be, be fit, but we have to have some muscle as well because we are the engine. We uh, come out of the starting gate, and the most important part of the race is who can get up to speed the fastest, and that is all peak power and explosiveness. So we do do a lot of weightlifting and different training to increase our power and uh, an effect of that is building up a bit more muscle. So uh, oftentimes when I tell people that I'm a BMX racer, they say, wow, you're really buff for a BMX racer, but uh, it does require quite a bit of strength to be out there. Do you also change the gear ratio on your bike depending on what course you're riding or do you like the same, do you and most riders keep the same bike all the time? That's a great question, and uh, every rider is different. There's some people that don't change. Myself, personally, I would say the majority uh, do change based on the course. Uh, If it's a shorter course, you might go a little bit of a smaller gear to have a bit of a quicker takeoff. Uh, If it's a longer course, you might go a bit bigger so you can continue to accelerate. But, yeah, it's uh, definitely something you have to consider when you're getting ready for uh, an event. Okay, let's talk a little bit about what you're wearing so you wear a full body like jumpsuit type thing, correct? Uh, so the only rules, the only rules are you have to have long pants and a long sleeve shirt, uh, as well as a helmet and gloves. So in theory, I could wear jeans and a hoodie uh, as long as I have my helmet and gloves on, and that would fit uh, the rules. But when you're racing at the high level, um, we have lightweight materials that are going to be breathable. You know, in the heat, especially in the summer, like in Rio or in Tokyo, lightweight material, but it's long sleeves and long pants. And then pads are a personal preference. Some people wear pads, some people do not. 
uh, I wear elbow pads uh, as well as shoulder pads uh, just to help with any of the, the possible impacts. But I do know athletes that don't wear any pads. So it's just, again, it's kind of personal preference. So on the suit, is there any abrasion protection like you would have in, in a motorcycle suit? No, not typically. Typically, no. It's, uh, that's, why, that's why the pads come in. So if you do fall, you have some padding there. But, yeah, no, no, no abrasion uh, stuff on there at all. It's lightweight and very thin. And if you hit the ground, it, it just disintegrates. Along with oh. a layer or two of your skin, I would imagine. Yeah, ow. <laughs> well, not when you're wearing the elbow pads. <laughs> <laughs> but that's only if you hit your elbow, Connor. Yeah, no, I've lost plenty of skin over the years, uh, as well as plenty of jerseys and plenty of pants. But, you know, it's, it's part of the game. Uh, so what makes it fun is that little bit of risk that is involved. Um, you know, that's what makes it so exciting. And uh, also stressful for my mom. I understand her pain. And now you're yeah, normal. I now and now I'm gonna worry about Connor when he races. Yeah. How fast <laughs> how fast do you get up to? Uh, high speeds are usually right around the uh, thirty five to forty mile an hour range. So we go pretty quick. And at that speed if you hit the ground, yeah, like you're saying, you do get some abrasions. But every course is different. There's some courses that run slower, some that run faster. Uh, also the type of dirt or the type of surface can affect the speed. If it is a, a more compact track that is maybe in a warm weather place uh, and it's made of clay, for example, it's going to roll quicker than oftentimes if we race in Europe or in Canada, the dirt and the soil has a bit more of uh, moisture in it because it rains more there and it might be a little bit stickier and slow you down. So the soil can affect the speed, but 35 to 40 is top speed. So what do you prefer? Uh, well, I'm from a warm weather climate, so I think oftentimes people prefer what they're used to. So I, I grew up racing on, on hard-packed clay tracks, and so that's more natural to me as opposed to the uh, more moisture, kind of softer tracks. Uh, I've raced everything over the years, but you know, I, I, I'd rather race in heat than in cold as well. Whereas when I see some of my competitors, you know, I always laugh at the, the British guys. We had a race in Argentina one year and it was 100 degrees. And me and the other other main American guy, he's from Arizona. I'm from Vegas. We're like, 100 degrees? This is a nice day in the summertime. What are you guys talking about? But uh, the Brits were dying. But then when we when we go over and race in Europe and it's, you know, 40 degrees, 50 degrees, I'm struggling. And they feel right at home. So I think a lot of it just depends on what you're used to. So what was the track in Rio? Because it was dirt and then some green stuff. So they make the turns um, at the high level of racing. So not at like kids level stuff, but at the Olympic level, they, they pave the turns with asphalt. Uh, they do that for two reasons. One, so weather doesn't affect uh, the race and we can still continue to race if it's raining. And two, when you're at the speeds that we're at, dirt doesn't grip the tires very well. Uh, think about if you're driving in your car and you make a sharp turn on, on loose dirt versus on asphalt. Obviously, the asphalt's going to grip your tires better. So the, the track was dirt and the turns were asphalt, but then they painted it green uh, to be something special for the Olympics. And it was the first and only time I have ever seen a colored turn other than the brown or black because it was dirt or asphalt. Did it throw you off at all? 
that was weird the first couple of times, but then after that, you know, it rode the exact same and felt the exact same. So it was just a visual trick that you just kind of had to get used to, but it didn't bother me at all. So was Rio a short course for you or a longer course? It was kind of average or standard, okay. I would say. So for us, the standard course is going to run between 35 and 40 seconds, maybe in the low 30s if it's a bit of a shorter course. And then there's different techniques that the builders can use. If they don't have as long of a, a distance to build or as much of a, a footprint to build on, you can build a track that runs slower. Um, so maybe the distance is shorter, but the length is longer. Uh, but Rio was pretty standard. And then for us, actually, Tokyo is going to be the longest track we've ever raced on. It's going to be in the low 40s to mid 40s in lap times. So for us, I know myself, and I would have to imagine that other athletes around the world are having to think about that with our training um, because it is going to be, you know, 15 to 20% longer, which is, you know, you know, when you think about it, eight seconds doesn't seem like a long time, but when you're adding 15 to 20% longer on your race, that's, that's quite a big amount. So it's something that we're thinking about for sure. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I, I remember talking to a, a snowboard cross racer before Pyeongchang, and Pyeongchang was, that was a longer course for him too, and building up that endurance takes some effort and really thought has to go into it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and for us especially, we don't pace at all. We just go. It's 100% effort from the beginning. We do not pace. We do not think anything other than go, 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 go. So holding on to that max effort for 35 seconds is hard. Holding it for 45 is a whole other ballgame. So we have to build up that endurance without sacrificing our peak power. So it's a bit of a, a delicate balance, and it's a lot of work, and I'm a little bit angry at the track builder for making me do all this extra work, but uh, hopefully it'll pay off. Going to put a pin in the course. I want to get back to helmets because a BMX helmet is a lot different from a lot of other biking helmets. I mean, what does all that extra protection around your neck do? Well, you got to remember that BMX uh, is a derivative of motocross. It actually stands for bicycle motocross. So, most of our stuff that we wear is either it is motorcycle equipment, uh, motocross equipment, or designed and derived from. So I actually, for me personally, I have always wanted to wear the top of the line safest helmet, even if it was heavier or maybe not as comfortable, uh, a bit bulkier. So I actually wear a helmet that is designed for motorcycle racing. They do make bike-specific ones, but I prefer to have that extra um extra padding and extra thickness just for safety. So, uh, yeah, I actually wear a motorcycle racing helmet. Um, and then the extra padding is designed just to protect as much as possible, uh, you know, on impact. And hopefully it's not ever needed, but on the off chance that it is, I always want the extra padding. I appreciate you saying that as somebody who sees a lot of concussions and, and a lot of bad helmets. Let's talk about the course and its elements. So f the first thing we've got really is everybody lines up in a gate and then talk about how courses are laid out from there. Yep. So BMS racing is really simple to understand. And, uh, part of what makes it so exciting is, is it's not judged. There's no, I, I mean, there is rules, but realistically there's not many rules. So it makes it, it's very easy to follow. So there's a starting line where eight riders will line up in the starting line. The, the gate will drop. Uh, at the exact same time for all eight riders. 
and it is essentially a race to the finish line, and whoever crosses the finish line first wins. Um, the only thing that is standardized uh, for the Olympics is the starting hill is eight meters high. Other than that, every course that we race at the Olympics is completely different, and every course that you'll go to around the world is going to be completely different. There might be elements that are the same or similarities, but that's part of what makes BMX racing so fun is that every course is different. I would compare it to golf, where every course is going to have a sand trap, but not every course. You're never going to get two courses that are the exact same. So that's probably the best way that I would describe the differences of our tracks. But then, yeah, there's going to be different jumps, different sizes, short jumps, long jumps, medium jumps. Some are going to be steep. Some are going to be flatter. There's three to four corners. Uh, again, tracks are different. Three seems to be what they've been gravitating towards, uh, more standardized. Uh, sometimes it's up to four. I've even seen some with five and six. And um, there's different sections of track, uh, different areas of, of maybe there's going to be more jumps that are smaller and closer together. Different areas might be bigger and more spread out. And then uh, there's a finish line. And, you know, like I said, the first person that crosses the finish line wins. So do you practice, because because the starting hill is standardized, do you practice that a lot to try to build up as much speed as possible to take you into the next section? Yes. Yeah, so you do that for a couple of reasons. One, you know exactly what it's going to be. And then two, it's always easier to win a race from the front than from behind. Uh, so like I mentioned earlier, we don't pace, we just go. And so if you can get out in front and then control the race, somebody's going to have to pass you and get around you to win, which is a lot harder to do than it is to just lead from the front and just hold on to it. So, yeah, we do do a lot of start practice, and most of our training is designed around start because it is so much easier to win from the beginning of the race. How do you pass somebody? Are there sections of the course where you you look at it ahead of time and go, okay, if I have to pass somebody, I can try to do it here, here, and here? Or is it just yeah. every, t- every chance so- you get? There are, um, you know, there's, there's definitely areas where you can see that there's some room. So, for example, if there's a one, one of the corners is much bigger and wider than the other, you know that, that there's going to be some room in there to make a pass if you need to. The other thing is um, because the jumps are so big and so difficult, there's mistakes that get made often. So if there are mistakes that get made, you have to be able to capitalize if a rider misjudges their distance or their timing uh, and be able to capitalize, you know, you could literally just ride right by somebody on a straightaway, uh, if they make a mistake, or if you're just that much faster, you can just ride right by them, or you can go underneath them in a corner. Uh, you could, you know, fake them out, make them think you're going to go underneath them. Then they go to counter. You could go to the outside and cross them up. There's different sorts of techniques. And then there's always the last straightaway, uh, where you can just try to pass somebody at the finish line. If you've got more endurance. So, yeah, there's all types of different passes. You want to always identify a spot or two that you, you think might be the spot. But it's for us, there's no plan, really. It's more like a read and react to what's going on. Okay. That led me to another question that I have. Because I, when I watch it, I'm always wondering how you know what to jump and how you know what to roll and when you know to jump. Yeah, so we always get a set amount of time on the course beforehand. So a lot of it is just experience-wise. You know, we can look at something and just figure, yeah, I'm going to do this here, I'm going to do that there. I can kind of judge based on my experiences. But you always try things. So in your practice and in your warm-ups, different options over a section or over a jump and figure out what you think is the fastest. And then when you know what's the fastest, that's going to be your plan A. 
And then if, you know, let's say you're bumping with another rider and you might not have your setup that you want, you've always got your plan B and your plan C as well. I'm always curious, like, when you do jump, like, there's that pumping action that you do with your arms. Like, how do you get your bike over these hills and how do you know you're going to get it over one or two of these hills or get over the whole step up kind of thing? Yeah. So again, a lot of that just comes down to experience. Um, I've jumped so many jumps in my life. I could look at a jump and kind of figure out how much speed I need and how far to go or how hard to pull up or whatever I might need to do to get it. But then what gets really tricky is you're trying to go as fast as you can over it. So being on the ground is faster than being in the air. So while BMX freestyle wants to go as high as they can, get as much airtime as they can. We want to minimize that airtime and be on the ground as much as we can. So a lot of the movement and a lot of the action, the pumping action you're talking about is actually us trying to get our bikes down and to the ground so we could be continuing to move forward. But yeah, I would just, you know, to answer that question, I would just say that the experience of knowing uh, how your speed and the shape of a jump kind of helps with knowing how far you have to go. Oh, that's really interesting just because they force you to go up in the air and it's try the the game is really trying to stay on the ground as much as possible. Yes, that's correct. Wow, okay. And then when I when I watch racers and their bikes kind of if they're in the air and the bike kind of goes sideways a little bit, what's going on there? Is that on purpose or is that just part of physics going on? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. So there's weight adjustments and movements being made uh, to make sure that you're in good balance and you're just trying to aggressively put the bike where you want the bike to go. Sometimes it could be if it's windy, you're kind of counterbalancing to the wind. You might come off the takeoff a little bit off balance and you're just making an adjustment in the air to get yourself more on balance. But you're never going to jump and just not move at all because at that point you're just a passenger. Uh, it would be like taking off with your eyes closed and then just holding on and hoping that you land okay. You're constantly adjusting, moving, and calculating to figure out uh, the safest and fastest way to get back to the ground. When you first started out, were you closing your eyes and hoping you landed okay? When I, when I was seven years old, so I was just trying to get a couple inches of air time when I was starting out. <laughs> When when you first start out, is it like I want airtime because that's really cool, and then yeah, exactly, and, and then you learn no, I don't really want airtime. Yeah, well, when you're young, you know, you just ride and you have fun, and part of the allure is uh, that feeling of flying through the air. And I still love jumping and all that stuff; it's still a lot of fun. But when you're racing and you're trying to win medals or win win big events, you're uh, you're trying to jump the jump as low and as smooth as possible. Okay. Uh, so for Tokyo, while we're watching, is there anything special we need to look out for besides you? Uh, I would I would just say that the long track is going to come into play more so than usual. So you'll be able to tell who's been putting their homework in as far as conditioning and fitness goes, without a doubt. What homework have you added to your homework schedule? I can't give you all my secrets. I'll tell you <laughs> after. All right. Thank you so much, Connor. Uh, you can find Connor at ConnorFields11 on all social platforms and check out his website, ConnorFields.com. He was such a joy to talk to. He was. I I love BMX and uh, I, I love watching it at the Olympics. And uh, he was just great. Like, not sunshine and roses, but I, I don't know. It makes you feel good when you talk to him. 
and he's confident but not arrogant and he's he's very kind for questions that are very basic so i appreciated that yes because as we all know i don't know how to ride a bicycle so when he started talking about the technicalities of bicycling i'm like oh my god i'm gonna feel really dumb but i didn't feel dumb because he broke it down in a way that said you are an intelligent person you can understand this even though you have the physical abilities of a five-year-old well hopefully we'll get you on a bike sometime soon only if the robot overlords need me to ride a bike okay then i will learn okay i'll, I'll put in a good word for bike riding with the robot overlords welcome to shukflistan it is time to check in with our team at Keep the Flame Alive. These are past guests who are now citizens of our country, Shukflistan. Uh, modern pentathlete Samantha Schultz competed in the second World Cup of the modern pentathlon season. She placed 18th in her qualification round, but uh, sadly did not make it to the finals. Still, she got to scrape off some of the rust because it's been a long time since she's got to compete. And it's good to have that out of the way before going to Tokyo. So we've got some controversy going on in figure skating. Eric Radford has announced that he will be pairing with Vanessa James, who was a partner formerly of Morgan Chipris. And that means that any professional relationship between Eric Radford and our Shukflistani Megan Duhamel is not happening. She posted on Instagram that this was a surprise to her, that she did not know of this new pairing until it was announced publicly. Which is not cool. Yeah. it's It doesn't seem to be that this new pair is particularly welcomed, given that Vanessa James's former skating partner retired under a huge cloud of sexual abuse misconduct claims. Yeah. it's It seems like it's messy all the way around. So we'll have to see how this plays out because they have announced that they are planning to make a wrong for Beijing. Which is interesting. And, and I think that the... The tough part for Megan is that once things opened up again and ice skating shows started again, she and Eric had planned to travel and perform in those. And that was going to be a major source of income for her. And now that just got taken away without the courtesy of saying, hey, by the way, I'm, I'm not going to be around for, for touring. Yeah, so rather un unfortunate situation going there. We'll see how it plays out because this just happened today. So we have very little information on how this is actually going to work, if Skate Canada is going to allow them to compete because Vanessa James is a Canadian citizen, but she had competed for France. So this is ongoing and we'll let you know. Our Paralympian John Register wrote the foreword to the new publication, Bespoke Bodies, the Design and Craft of Prosthetics by Amanda Hawkins and Sam Acchiano. Uh, this is a publication that talks about the 500-year history of prosthetics, and it accompanies uh, the Design Museum's exhibition of the same name. We will have links to all of this in the show notes. This Saturday, race walker Evan Dunphy will attempt to set a world record for the fastest walking 10K. It will take place at the Richmond Olympic Oval, and that was the Vancouver uh, speed skating venue at 11 a.m. Pacific time. You can watch on the track's TV stream, Oval TV, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Saturday is a big day because there are also two track and field meets in the U.S., so 
our hammer thrower, Deanna Price, will be competing at the USATF, USA Track and Field Federation, Grand Prix at Oregon Relays in Eugene, Oregon. This will be on USATF.tv from 1 to 2 p.m. Pacific and on NBCSN and Peacock from 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific. Deanna's event is scheduled for 2.50 p.m. Pacific, so hopefully that's on NBCSN or Peacock. And we will have a link to the uh, meet information in the show notes. And Dawn Harper Nelson will also be competing on Saturday in her first meet of the year. She'll be at the Drake Relays in Des Moines, Iowa. Is that going to be visible, or we? Uh... It's going to be behind a paywall. I, okay. I looked. It's they'll they'll have a live stream, but it's it's uh, only available if you subscribe to it. But we will put that link up as well. My goodness, Saturday is busy. It is. And it's it's a lot of people moving fast. Right? (laughs) You know, speaking of moving quickly, it's going to be time for another book club uh, episode. And even book club's coming up next week, but you still have time to read Foxcatcher. Get your copy from bookshop.org slash shop slash flame alive pod. This is another way that helps us raise money for the show and for going to Beijing because we get a commission from the books purchased through our link. So it's not just the books that we have in our store, but it's anything you buy. If you go through our store link, anything you buy at bookshop.org will give us a little cut. So we are adding new new titles to our storefront and continue to check that out. It is the 25th anniversary of the Atlanta 1996 Olympics. So every week we're looking back at some of these stories from these games. Allison, it is your week this week. What do you have for me? I have cycling since we were talking BMX. BMX was not obviously in the Olympics at that point, but mountain biking made its debut in 1996 for both men and women. So that's the closest we had in the, uh, on the, on the docket there. So the, uh, Race was contested at Conyers, which was not far from Atlanta. And at the time, uh, mountain biking races were much, much longer than they are today. And on the day of the race, it was 86 degrees with 72% humidity. Holy cow. That's a little hot. Wow. So thankfully nobody died. Like, remember that story we were telling about how someone died in the uh, bicycle race I think it was in the 1960 in the in the Rome heat. Oh, right, right. Yeah, nobody died, though they did have to put fans and water sprayers on the course itself, you know, sort of like riding through those sprayers at Disney World, which I think would have made it kind of muddy. But nobody seemed to complain about that. So I guess it was so hot that just they were grateful for any relief of heat. So reigning world champion Bart Brennions of the Netherlands won the gold medal. But my favorite part of the story is now he runs a pro mountain bike team called the Milka Superior MTB Racing Team. He keeps his bike that he won the gold medal with in his office. What? As just like, yes, that's my gold medal winning bike. Would you like to sit on it? Like he he just has it out. Wow. Like he's going to take it for a spin. It's not encased it may kind of hang on the wall, you know, you have those little hooks, but it's just out hanging around and he talks about it. Very cool. Very cool. Did you see, because uh, mountain biking was on my list of things to explore for, and I had read uh, an article about the the Californication of sports and because beach volleyball was very 
beachy California type sport and mountain biking was along that same lines. The woman, the woman who won the women's mountain biking was Italian. And yes. I had seen the clip of her and it was so hot. She had unzipped her shirt almost all the way. Remember when that happened at Pyeongchang with the speed skater when she went to unzip her suit and she forgot there was nothing underneath? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so maybe it was the same thing. So what I thought, one of the points that they made was uh, mountain biking was really an American invention. Mm-hmm. It came of age kind of in the 1970s. But of the six medals that were awarded, only the women's bronze went to an American. Wow. Because really, I think Europe has just embraced this sport and this discipline and uh take it taking it to new heights or muddier fields i think you can still go to the biking the mountain biking venue today and mountain bike i think they've managed to fix it back up well you could i couldn't someday you too can mountain bike I'm, for... I'm so excited for Tokyo now. I am so ready. Are you Are you really? Somehow I woke up the other day and I said to myself, they're going to happen. This is amazing. And now I'm really excited. Excellent. I, I don't even know. <laughs> like, all right. Let's go. <laughs> let's get them now. So uh, speaking of, uh, there's a constant question in the press. Will they, won't they happen? Will they, won't they happen? What you're going to see probably coming up soon is that Japan will announce a state of emergency in the country. That's uh, it, There was a, an IOC executive board uh, meeting today with a press conference following, and, and T-Bach brought that up. He said that's really to target Golden Week in Japan, which is at the end of April, and it's their big vacation week. So uh, officials want to stop the spread during that golden week. So that's why you'll see a state of emergency, probably see more. Well, we'll they cancel the games, but that's not going to happen. Stay calm, folks. We're good. Exactly. Uh, the organizing committee in Tokyo has pushed back the decision on whether or not they will allow fans at all at Tokyo. So they were going to make the decision this month, but they've pushed that back to June, according to the Associated Press. And then... New Zealand, yet again, proving how amazing they are. The Olympic Committee has has built a giant skateboard and they are taking it on tour around the country. Now, when we say giant skateboard, the entire New Zealand skateboarding team was sitting on just a section of this skateboard. Exactly. Exactly. It's it's akin to what we would have in the the U.S. It, it, I likened it to a an Oscar Mayer Wiener mobile. Yes, I would. It agree. might not be that big, but it, it you know you're talking about giant skateboard, and yeah, uh, probably a good twenty twenty four to thirty people could fit on this thing. We should try. Oh, that's right. New Zealand. But New Zealand won't let us in. I know. That's right. So look for they they are marking down uh, their 100 days to go. So they are going to have uh, a bunch of they're going to take the, the skateboard around the country and have uh, little events to go along with it to get the local fans excited for the games. So, so we've talked a lot about having to move equipment 
you know, boats, skis. But imagine having to move the skateboard. <laughs> See, what they do is they put a person on top and they have access to a giant leg, a giant foot that propels. And they just kind of like it's a hand crank thing and they just move the foot to go. <laughs> Can you imagine seeing this rolling down the, the road in Christchurch? Hi. How you doing? Oh, that would be fabulous. So if you are listening from New Zealand, Dr. Michael Warren, let us know if you see this. Please go see the safe word. Yes, see it for us. Please see it for us. We have a little news about Paris 2024 from Inside the Games. World Sailing might lose one of its medal events. So... The So the Paris 2024 event program was decided, I believe, at the last IOC me- uh, big meeting in December. And World Sailing had put forth this event that was a multi-day mixed offshore event. And Paris said no. And World Sailing didn't have another option that they wanted to put forward for an event. So they uh, the IOC has said You've got to put forth a different event by May 26, or you're going to lo- you're going to lose that medal opportunity. They are looking to replace the Finn class of boats for Paris 2024. Maybe they should replace it with a Swede class. Whoa! Scandinavian jokes. I told you I was excited. <laughs> Uh, We have some news from Milan Cortina. So the IOC Coordination Commission had their second meeting about Milan Cortina. And uh, they did say that with the logo competition, man, you were right, Allison. That Futura won with 75% of the vote. And they had uh, about 871,000 votes from 169 countries. And they happened to like... Futura. Okay. So uh, the organizing committee has chosen a consortium to create the village master plan. So we'll start seeing news about that in the coming months, I'm sure. But the big news was the what's going on with the sliding track. Because if you recall, that's been one of the, one of the sticking points for the IOC about the Milan Cortina Olympic plan. Because... From the beginning, it was a question in their bid. Right, right. But passion won. Come on, passion won. So the big sliding track in Italy is in Cortina, was part of the 1956 uh, Olympics. It was closed down because it needed refurbishment and nobody had the money for it. And in the bid, they said, we will renovate it. And the IOC said, that will be very expensive. We highly recommend you look at St. Moritz or Innsbruck. And they said, we will renovate it. And the IOC kept saying, how about another option? Well, here's the other option. So the region of Veneto has decided to build a big entertainment park, a winter, uh, winter, summer entertainment center. And the sliding track is going to be part of that. And so what did the IOC say? Oh, well, if that's going to be a project of the Veneto region government... We don't have to have a say in that anymore. It's not in our budget. 
Right. So it's not going to be a, you and and this will be kind of interesting to see how this plays out in like uh, what's it 2021. This will be interested to see how this plays out in like four to five years when when the bill comes due. Yeah, when this is so expensive, but the the bill might actually be slid in among this whole entertainment park budget, so you'll never know how much it cost. And the IOC isn't going to care because they aren't. It's not part of the Olympics anymore, so they aren't on the hook for it. Or they're, or they're. Well, they wouldn't be on the hook for it anyway. It wouldn't be a black mark on the organizing committee because it's not one of their projects anymore. Everyone's dodged a bullet here. That that track is still going to cost a fortune to to renovate. Have you seen the Futura logo? <laughs> That was not expensive. <laughs> it's so bellissimo. I feel the passion already. <laughs> Pasty limoncello. <laughs> All right, we do have some IOC news because there was a press conference today. But first, Airbnb, which is one of the IOC's top sponsors, uh, has announced that it's going to start a travel grant program and award up to 500 athletes a year, up to $2,000 in Airbnb credit for travel-related accommodation costs linked to their sporting careers. And they will have this program going for the next eight years, which is nice. That could be really helpful, especially for those winter athletes that spend months at a time in Europe. Right. I'm, I'm very curious to see who gets this, because when I think of the athletes that really need this, it's, it's those middling athletes in smaller sports that don't get anything else or they get they're they're surviving on a really tiny monthly stipend from a national governing body. That's who I hope gets this versus the, oh, Simone Biles, let's give you a travel credit. She doesn't need a travel no. credit. No. She can fit in a suitcase. <laughs> so you're saying she can fit into a tiny Airbnb, tiny house. She can fit in those little <laughs> capsule hotels that they have in <laughs> Tokyo. And she'd have room to spare. You know, that would be an interesting village concept once they like, oh, coronavirus, we'll just turn the village into capsule hotels and nobody just lock yourself in at night. That, that's my hotel in hell, man. Oh, right. Oh, man. Oh, oh claustrophobic. Um, so uh, big news coming out of this meeting is we had the results of the review of Rule 50 uh, saying what athletes will be allowed to do to uh, support causes or have protests at the Olympics. So the head of the athlete, uh, the IOC Athletes Commission, Kirsty Coventry, she uh, got on to make a presentation and uh, talked about the survey that they've been doing over the last several months. They had over 3,500 current athletes surveyed and found out that 70% of them do not want protests on the podium, on the field of play, or during ceremonies, opening and closing ceremonies. I thought that was interesting. And I'm, I'm not surprised I'd be curious. We haven't had time today to dig into the report because the IOC uh, board meeting was today. Today is uh, Wednesday, the 21st. And uh, the report came out. We haven't had time to dig into the do a deeper dive on the demographics of who said what for each question, because I'm very curious to know how the U.S. 
athletes responded to wanting podium protests. Right. Is that 30 percent going to be, you know, predominantly American, Canadian uh, athletes? You know, is that sort of 30 percent who say, yes, protests are good, I would expect to be the North American athletes right. at the very, mm-hmm. and then a few smatterings here and there. Right. So uh, when she was asked if athletes would be punished in Tokyo for making political statements as such as taking a knee on the podium in support of racial equality, she said, yes, they will be punished. The other elements that they've come up with for this Rule 50 proposal, uh, one thing would be to come up with sanctions that are clear. Uh, She did say that every circumstance will be taken individually, but to give athletes an idea of what sanctions would generally be was part of what they're working on next. They also want to highlight solidarity and unity and non-discrimination. So I think they're coming at it not from the not from the protest side. It's the let's promote what we want out of the protest side of it. So they're going to try to do something with that, those themes at the opening and closing ceremonies. They're actually going to change the Olympic oath that the athletes, the judges, the coaches, and the officials take. It's going to be more inclusive and have non-discrimination in place. So the oath right now is in the name of the athletes or judges or all coaches and officials. We promise to take part in these Olympic games, respecting and abiding by the rules and in the spirit of fair play. Uh, We commit ourselves to sport without doping, cheating. Uh, We do this for the glory of sport, for the honor of our teams, and in respect for the fundamental principles of Olympism. So what they're proposing to change it to is we promise to take part in these Olympic Games, respecting and abiding by the rules and in the spirit of fair play, inclusion and equality. Together we stand in solidarity and commit ourselves to sport without doping, without cheating, and without any form of discrimination. We do this for the honor of our teams and in respect for the fundamentals, principles of Olympism, and to make the world a better place through sport. So they added in a lot of solidarity and stuff and took out that glorious sport thing phrase. It's actually, I love that change. I do too. I I think it, it better reflects where we are as a society and where sport fits into it. Exactly. That whole making the world a better place through sport, because we understand better now how sport can change people's lives for the better. And it's nice to have this be part of the oath. Right. So, you know, the USOPC said it's fine at Olympic trials because that's their venue. So Mm -hmm. it'll be interesting to see how some of the more outspoken American athletes react to this to say, is being able to protest issues that are facing the United States in the United States at American competitions enough? Or do I still need to make this international statement? Right. Because one of the other things that came out in the survey was that athletes still wanted a place to be able to talk about that stuff. So they were looking at the uh, press conferences in the mixed media event zone and uh, like digital platforms and and using their athletes 365 platform to talk about issues. But 
trying to find a place outside the field of play that gives athletes a sufficient place where they can air their concerns and their thoughts and views on the world. And it'll be interesting to see. I, I think if I was, was an athlete that really wanted to pro- use a podium protest, it's because I never got any other airtime to talk about stuff. So I had to do something big so that people would notice me and want to talk to me. So I'd be interested to see if the IOC is going to actively encourage social causes or discrimination issues in the press conferences that the athletes go through. You know, will will that be more of a focal point or are athletes still just going to ha- talk about their sport and the results and not get what's really on their mind that they could have gotten if they had done uh, something big. Yes, I see where you're going in mm-hmm. that would the athlete have more because often in those press conferences, it's just the press asking you questions. You don't get much chance as an athlete to make a statement mm-hmm. and to refuse to answer questions and to say, I want to answer questions about X. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't get much power in those press conferences to direct the conversation. It's very much thrown at you. Right. And will they allow athletes more control over their press conferences? Right. Will there be, you know, it'd be interesting. I I know there's a lot of materials prepared for the media in advance or the media is preparing their own materials in advance and doing research and putting together bios and and things on uh, the athletes. Will athletes who have particular causes that they care about have that highlighted in those bios? That'll be interesting to see. Will that be part of the story that is encouraged to be reported upon each day? One of the other uh, solutions that they've come up with is incorporating collective messaging into different areas of the games. So we'll probably see some signage to, to that talks about celebrating peace and respect and solidarity and inclusion, all their buzzwords. So they're looking at getting apparel for athletes that they can wear, digital messaging all, all around, things that are going to be in the village for them to take part in. So hopefully they'll uh, – I hope this is a nice compromise. And it'll be expe- – it'll be especially interesting to see in Tokyo given the limited interactions. Right. You're going to have much – fewer members of the press. You're going to not have public gatherings. Mm -hmm. You're not going to have all these international fans. It's really going to be a TV event Mm -hmm. in a way that it, it, obviously most people see it on TV, but it really is going to be designed to be a TV event. Exactly. And how is that going to play out versus how it plays out, say in Paris, when you we would assume it's going to be more back to what we expect. Yeah. I am very curious to to see how this plays out and how quickly they can pull, pull stuff together and, and uh, make that happen. Um, the last thing that was very interesting coming out of this press conference was that TBOC had proposed in the last session, one of the earlier meetings this year, because they're all running together now, uh, but he talked about changing the Olympic motto, Citius Altius Fortius, to Citius Altius Fortius Communius. So adding that spirit of 
community and solidarity to the faster, higher, stronger. So they talked about this idea at the executive board meeting today. They've gotten support from the international Pierre de Coubertin committee, and um, they're now going to turn to the IOC membership to get their comments and uh, may make a change to the Olympic Charter to include this new uh, motto at the IOC session in Tokyo. My first instinct is to not like it. Right, because it's change. Because so it's change. And I like the three, you know, that, mm-hmm. that, you know, that rule of three in design exactly. and stuff. But I'm going to keep my mouth shut and I'm not going to say I don't like it until I read more about it and get the background on it and not knee jerk. I don't like any change. Get off my lawn. Right, right. But it's interesting how inclusion has been a, a big part of the discussions of what the Olympics are now. I'll check with the robot overlords if they accept communius. <laughs> well, you report back when they let you. And in the meantime, that will do it for this week. Let us know what you think about BMX racing. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta and keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Join us next week for more Olympic stories. We have done a ton of interviews lately, so it's so exciting to be able to bring those to you. Next week is Book Club. We're talking Foxcatcher. And we've got more athlete interviews on the books, so we are looking forward to bringing you those as we go out to music by Archdale. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. I can't give you all my secrets.